today I will be reading from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, 11 to 16. You can follow along in your Bible or on screen as I read the passage aloud for us. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. That is God's word. Uh, on my phone, uh, Apple does this thing where it will curate photos like old photos of my life with Ashley and my kids, and it's always like the right time, like featured photos. Uh, like now and Juniper both uh, had a birthday in January, so throughout the month, we were, my, Ashley and I were getting all these photos of them like being born and their first birthday and memorable moments along the way, and then Ashley would send them to me and I would send them to her, and we'd be like, oh, oh my gosh, how many, oh my gosh, time goes by so fast, you know, that whole thing. Uh, but, you know, let me be a dad for a second. Here's a picture of Juniper when she was, like, a couple uh, months old, maybe, Ash, a couple months old. Um, my gosh, so cute. And, like, you just, oh, like that age. And then here's one of Nowen when he was barely born and Junie giving him a little kiss. And, um, and then you see them, and we kept, kept thinking over and over again this last month um, how, like, cute they were when they were young and how like when they screamed in your face it was because they were babies, not because they were mad at you. Um, and use language when they scream, at, not like cussing. They don't do that yet, but, um, <laughs> but like that. Uh, and when they were both babies, they were cute because I, th this, I think it's the, it's the job of babies to be cute. I mean, that's, I, babies are so cute, so you, you know, don't eat them or whatever. You're just like, oh my gosh, they're so cute. And a friend of mine who has been a part of this church since like day one sent me uh, photos last night of his new baby girl, and I sent them to Ash, and we were both like going back and forth on text, like, oh my gosh, so cute. Um, but you know what's not cute? It's, it's not cute when babies never grow up, when they never go through the stages of development and maturity. Uh, barring some you know, abnormality, human bodies are supposed to mature. Human bodies are supposed to grow. And the Apostle Paul calls the church on multiple occasions the body of Christ. And like any human body, the goal and the purpose, the nature of things, is that growth and maturity would take place. Our text today ends like this. Speaking the truth in love, he's talking to the church, and we're gonna talk about like the messiness of the church today. 
speaking the truth in love, we will grow. The church will grow to become, in every respect, the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. Christ is the head, and the church is the body, and the goal of a body, just like any body, is to grow up and mature. Babies are cute, adult babies are not cute. From him, the whole body, joined together by supporting every ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part of this body does its work. Now, just so the metaphor isn't lost on you, Christ is the head, the mind, the brains, the top, the source, and the church is the body of Christ, who is the head. We are the body of Christ. And the point is that we are to be as diverse just like body parts are diverse, like your finger doesn't look like your elbow sort of thing. Like they're different body parts that do different things. We are to be unified just like body parts are unified and work together. We are supposed to grow and mature just like any human body is supposed to, supposed to grow and mature. But how does this all happen? Paul tries to persuade us that, that love is how this all happens. This all happens through and by love. We are in a series called The Vision is Love, and every year we begin the year by um, reminding you, the congregation, why we exist as a church, like the vision behind why we exist. And at Annual Vision and Prayer, which was last uh, Sunday night, I said that the vision of our whole year is actually to explore love as a topic and as a hermeneutic for the church. Uh, in the past, we've done, we've done this a few different times where when we want uh, something uh, something of scripture to be deeply embedded and ingrained in the culture of our church, we'll spend a whole year exploring it. We did this thing called the Year of Biblical Literacy years ago where we just like, like we as followers of Jesus must become biblically literate people that know what the Bible is trying to do and, and, and know how to follow its flow and its story arc. We did this also this thing where we did the Year of Authentic uh, relationship and thought community where we talked about having difficult conversations and how to forgive and, and what it looks like to have emotionally healthy relationships, that sort of thing. And then we did this thing on like a year of intimacy with God where we explored what does intimacy with God look like. And, and so we do this to get this stuff kind of ingrained in our church. And this year, we're gonna spend our whole year exploring love from all these different ways, all these different types of series through, uh, through, the, through the lens of love. And today, what I'd like to do as a part of this vision series is try and persuade you of what this text is trying to teach us. That is, the goal of the church is unity and maturity, and this happens through love. And not like ornamental, hot, pink, emotional love, not one that checks all the boxes of your preferences and your leanings, but rather a rugged love, a love that looks more like suffering, a love that looks more like suffering. Why isn't anyone saying amen? You're supposed to like, yes, amen, okay. A love that looks more like suffering through relationships in the church with people who are so different from you, all the way to the point of learning humility. This is what Paul says in, in Ephesians 4, that you learn humility and gentleness and patience in the hard way through relationships. And this doesn't happen you know, from a, a zap from the Holy Spirit, though that is helpful when the Holy Spirit does that. But through bearing with one another, Paul says, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, and living in unity through one another's differences. And to do this, what I want to do is I want to start 
by, by showing you how this works out in the church. I want to start where all biblical conversations about love and, and unity must start, at the point where everything went wrong. In Genesis chapter three, the chapter begins uh, with unity and harmony and integration. This is Genesis one and two. Uh, humanity lived, male, female lived, with uh, a purpose of living in the world as gardeners, of, of cultivating the land. Um, they were in unity with the earth. They were in unity with the animals. They were in unity with God. Integration, everything was integrated. Whole, shalom is, is the word. And Man and woman ex- accept each other joyfully as gifts from God, and they live integrated with the land and with nature and with God. But as you keep reading in Genesis chapter three, Adam and Eve, who are our first parents, the archetypal humans, grasp for equality with God. Another way of saying that is they want to become their own gods, their own authority. They believe the serpent, that talking snake in the garden, and distrust God, thinking that God is holding out on their happiness and their pleasure. And when they rebel, when they eat from the tree that is forbidden, the first thing that happens is that they realize they are naked and different, and their differences bring them shame, and so they hide. And when God shows up and asks, what happened? Like, who told you you were naked? Adam responds like this. Well, the woman that you put me here with she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. And what Adam does, he, he, in one short sentence, Adam manages to both throw Eve under the bus, claim his own innocence, and blame God for creating her. That's what he does. This is, by the way, these are proto-humans. This is all of us, by the way. He's like, I didn't ask to be born. I didn't ask for her to be born. You gave her to me. And I'm just, you know, I'm like living in unity and she gave me something and I ate it. I ate it because she, she gave me food and I'm like, I'm not gonna reject that. I didn't do anything. I just ate what she gave me. You did, you, maybe you did it. Maybe you, maybe you shouldn't have put that tree there. I don't know. So he's doing that thing like that we all do all the time. Eve does the same thing and blames the serpent. And the thing to pay attention to here is that in the wake of human alienation from God, because that's what happens, The relationship between Adam and Eve goes from being a partnership to being a matter of domination and subjection. God tells Eve, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. This is in the context of the curses. This is not a good thing. This is what happens when rebellion happens. And this disruption of the friendship and unity among human beings, all flowing from the disruption of their friendship with God, extends from Adam and Eve to their family. Because the first story of killing and murder will happen in the next chapter where Cain kills Abel out of jealousy and pride. And then it extends to tribes, and then, it, then nations, and then everything in between. And not only is there a brokenness between humanity, but the ripple effects of the alienation from God extend all the way down to the ground, to the land, to the earth. Because the ground is cursed and humanity has to extract their livelihood from the ground by force, by the sweat and the toil of their brow and through the thorns of the ground. Because, and because of that, there's this feeling, this human feeling of scarcity, of lack, 
because the ground only produces so much. There's only so much the land can produce. There's only so much rain, so much crops, so much trees. There's only so much land. So life on earth is competition for limited goods, not only material goods, but the goods of glory and honor and happiness. It's all scarcity now. Therefore, human beings become not just not gifts to each other like they were, but threats to one another. The human story down the centuries becomes the story of everyone against everyone. This is spouses, partners, they're, they're in strife. Um, families versus other families, not just families versus other families, but inside those families there's strife. Inside friend circles there's strife. There's tribe versus other tribes, but even inside of tribes there's strife too. There's nations versus nations, and even in a nation called the United States, there's division there. States are against other states, but even in states there's fighting. There's cities that are against other cities, but even in that city there's fighting. And there's companies and franchises that are in competition against other companies and franchises. But even inside of those companies and franchises, there's competition as well. It's everyone against everyone. And you're like, why in the world are you depressing us on this rainy, rainy day? What does all this depressing retelling of the human story have to do with the church? the body of Christ. Well, we have to skip ahead to the book of Acts. After the life and the ministry and the teachings and the death and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit will be given to the church. And when I say the church, this is important, so please pay attention. When I say the church at that time, it's important to understand that the church at the beginning was made up of only Christ-following Jews. Jesus was a Jewish, Jewish Messiah sent to the Jews to save the Jews, and his first followers and his apostles were all Jewish at the beginning of the Jesus movement. But then something happens. The Holy Spirit not only falls upon Jewish believers, but against all expectations, the Holy Spirit and the saving work of Christ falls upon Gentiles as well. Now, Gentiles are just basically a way of saying non-Jewish people. So the Jews divided the world into Jews and then Gentiles, Jews and non-Jews. Christ falls upon, the Holy Spirit comes upon Gentiles, that is non-Jews, which means Jesus and his saving and redeeming work to make us friends with God will no longer be restricted to those who are descended from Abraham and follow Torah, but will now encompass anyone who has faith in Jesus. And to this, the author, Frederick Bauerschmidt, says in his book, uh, The Love That Is God, which is like the source material. If you want a way better version of these sermons, just go read this, this really amazing book. He says that this might seem an obscure issue buried in the irrelevance of history. You know, this Jew and Gentile like becoming, like the Holy Spirit falling on Gentiles and them being brought into the church. He says, but it speaks to the deep divisions that trouble our world to this day. The ongoing war of everyone against everyone, the conflicts between nations, political parties, races, and social and economic classes. See, to the Jews of the first century, and you have to understand this, Gentiles, those who were not Jewish, were seen as unclean, not kosher, like pigs, literally. Uh, to have a Gentile sit at your dinner table was the same as having pork on your dinner table. Now, 
forgotten in the Abrahamic story is that when God called Abraham into friendship, it was in order to fulfill God's purpose of being a blessing to all the families of the earth. The division between Jew and Gentile seems to, over time, for all sorts of reasons, become one more battle line in the war of everyone against everyone. But the Spirit falls on the Gentiles, and all of a sudden, you have a church made up of enemies. You have a church made up of enemies. People who have different perspectives on just about everything other than Jesus are now brought together into one church. Both sides of the Jewish, non-Jewish traditions, you had built-in prejudices against the, the, the other, you had worldviews that were conflicting, you had different ways of living and dressing and being married and not married, and even different ways of eating. They fought over eating. They fought over how to eat. That, and all this stuff was turned upside down when they were made one in Christ. So they had to figure out how to live with each other. Like it would be like if Reality San Francisco, San Francisco, Reality San Francisco decided to merge with the church in Central Florida. Now, of course, you're like, how do you do that? Like, I don't know, like imagine we met in the middle or something. We just pulled our, like imagine a church there and a church here. There, they feel a lot different because they're opposite side of the world t- to us. Like, both politically, uh, church-wise, all that stuff. And then they think of that about us, and we think that about them. But imagine us becoming one. Now multiply that by, I don't know, a billion, and then you're about on track. It was so different to bring people in that were enemies. So the words Paul uses in Ephesians, words like diversity of members, union as the body of Christ, growth in love, all of this is kind of radical. And if you have the impression it was easy and utopian, you would be mistaken. There were fights and divisions and people trying to take advantage of other people. There was favoritism and there was prejudice. And to all of it, the writers of the New Testament continue to circulate letters addressing all of these problems and correcting them and encouraging the church to grow in unity, to forgive, to live, how to live as a Christian household, how to share a meal, how to no longer worship Caesar as Lord, but worship Christ as Lord. Now here's the question, and it took a long way to get to this question, but this remains the question for like 2,000 years. 2,000 years later, this is still the question. Why the church? Why the institution of the church? Why does Christianity become a religion? Why not just go be spiritual with Jesus and Big Sur? Right? That is, why, why don't you just do that? Or why not have a, just like a curated, small group church that meets in your backyard or your garage or around your dining room table and it's like made up of people that you are friends with or committed to the same things that you're committed to and it's just like this like thing that you're like, oh, you and I see the same things the same way or you and I want the same things or you live down the street from me and, let, and we're gonna be now a church and you're just gonna meet in our living room, we're, just, we're not gonna have any sort of institutional things, we're not gonna have any sorts of authority figures, we're just gonna be, be the church. Okay, why? Why not just do that? Why the institution of the church? Why the established church with pastors and church plants and church planters of prophets and evangelists and teachers and money and fundraising and structures of authority? 
And the best answer I can come up with from the scriptures and study is that the Spirit's formation of the church, the early church, of Jews and Gentiles, enemies and people who had nothing in common suggests that part of being a friend of God involves being a part of a visible community in which reconciliation of enemies takes bodily form through specific practices led and taught by those gifted in the church and endowed with authority by God. That was a long sentence. Let me explain what I mean, what, what, what is meant by that. Let's, let's go back to Genesis 3 real quick. In Genesis 3, things were unzipped in Genesis. They were pulled apart, male and female, families, tribes, nations. The things that were integrated become pulled apart, like, like just torn apart, unzipped. The things that were pulled apart in Genesis 3, in the early church, in the New Testament, becomes the very location that God's spirit brings the work of zipping it up again, of taking what was torn apart and bringing those two things together, of unifying, of pulling together in reconciliation. It's like if alienation from God brought the war of everyone against everyone, then reconciliation with God brings with it reconciliation and unity of everyone, and that starts in the church. Does that make sense? The things that were destroyed, pulled apart, unzipped, like the things that were different, that made us different, in the church are now pulled together. The church is the location, the visible, and I wanna say visible, because this is not an unseen church. It's not supposed to be an unseen church. There's something beautiful about um, not meeting in a nightclub anymore as a church. That was fun for a season. We started our church like in a nightclub. That was whatever. It was, it was the only place we could find, I'll just say that. Um, and I loved it. I loved it. And there's, um, I'm nostalgic looking back on it. And it was amazing. But there's something about like, there's a church that meets in there. Is the church like a secret church? Like what are they doing there? I remember the, the owner of that building when he's like, you're not gonna like sacrifice things in there, are you? Like he honestly thought that. He actually came to AVP, uh, Annual Vision of Prayer. He, he comes every year. Uh, he goes, you guys are like my babies. Um, he says that. Uh, and he's like, he asked me, I'm like, what? Like, so he was like, you're not gonna like burn hair and leave wax everywhere. I'm like, what are you saying? Because we ran out to a place that like they were burning things and sacrificing. And it was, it was, I'm like, no, we're not doing that. We're not doing that at all. Like, there's some way that like it's, it's, it was kind of hidden then. And then as our church has now bought a building, you can't hide. I mean, this is a church, I mean, it's there, it's here. Like, people walk by it, like, oh, that's a build. That's a church, that, that's, that's there. There's something about it being visible and open to everyone. That place, the church is the visible place where humanity, where God wants humanity to become zipped up again, pulled back together. The Spirit's formation of the church of Jews and Gentiles suggests that part of being a friend with God involves being part of a visible community in which reconciliation of enemies takes bodily form through specific practices in the church. The church, the visible and open church, becomes a place for face-to-face confrontation with those who, apart from God's friendship, would be strangers and aliens to us. So Paul writes this to the church in Galatia, and the church in Galatia was really messed up. They had 
um, people, Jews that, that infiltrated the church in Galatia that were trying to make Christians into Torah-observant Jews because they said, you can't be a, a Christ follower unless you're a Jew, so we have to make you a Jew first, and they were trying to circumcise adult males, and Paul was so pissed. I mean, he was so mad about this. He even said at a certain point in Galatia, I wish you wouldn't just circum, I wish you would just cut yourself off entirely. He says that, in, in the, it's there in the Bible. You can find it, just go look for it. Paul was angry because what binds the church together is no longer circumcision or even Torah, it's Jesus and his sacrificial atoning death on the cross. That's what binds the church together. And so Paul says this in Galatians 3.27, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. The thing, okay, listen, the things that, were, that divided humanity now unite humanity in Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There is neither male and female, for you are all one in Christ. That is a radical New Testament statement that you will not find an equal to outside of Christianity at that time. And if you believe that that's like, oh yeah, that's how life should be, it's because you live and you have been indoctrinated by a Christian worldview and you don't even know it. This is unique to Christianity. And this, this is a remarkable verse saying that the things that were differences among you and divided you, those identity markers are washed away in a bath that is both death and birth, which is baptism. And baptism in the early church was an undignified thing. It was messy. They would get baptized completely naked. They would take off their clothes, which represented a, some sort of status that they carried, and they would go into the water naked, nude. And they would, when, as they came out, they were clothed with a white gown or white robe. To symbolize the undignified, because you came into the world naked. You come into the new world, reborn. We're not, now, we're not gonna start practicing this, because <laughs> cultural context and all that, you know, all that stuff uh, means something different today, a lot. Um, but it was supposed to be this kind of a messy, undignified thing that when you came out of the water, you were literally clothed with Christ. And you were brought into this family. Therefore, well actually, however, the, the church and this new identity that we have in Christ does not eliminate the differences between Christians. Those variations of cultural and racial and sexual identity rise reborn in Christ from the waters of baptism, no longer the source of division, but now the enriching beauty of diversity in the body of Christ. And therefore, the church is to be a visible display of this kind of unity between things that were once pulled apart but are now brought together by Jesus under his authority. Which brings me to this very bad word, religion. The word religion comes from this word, um, uh, religare, which is a Latin word. Um, I probably butchered it, but there you go. Uh, it means to bind together, to tie up. That's where the word religion comes from. Now, when I say to Western individualists that the goal of the church is to bind you up and tie you together, you probably can't help thinking how that kind of restriction placed on your freedom might be suffocating like your individual spirit is getting its wings clipped, and you would not be wrong. We live in a city where we would prefer, and I would prefer, if I was honest, to be spiritual and not religious. 
The mantra of San Francisco is that. I'm spiritual, I'm not religious, I'm spiritual. There's even a Christianese sort of version of this. This actually um, became really popular during like the Jesus movement, where they would, people would say, I'm not religious, I'm not a part of a religion, I just have a relationship with Jesus, man. I'm not religious, I have a relationship. Now, what both parties are trying to avoid getting all tied up in is the institution of what it means to be religious. The, the rituals, the rites, the binding, the compulsory requirements. But all you're really doing when you say that and do that is remove yourself from any sort of requirements that you don't want put on you. Which brings me back to love. I did a wedding this weekend for a couple uh, from this church. And though I don't nearly do as many weddings as I used to since you know, there's all sorts of other pastors on our staff that do those, um, when I do them, my homily is virtually the same one I do at every single wedding. And I do this on purpose, not because I'm lazy, but by design. Every single time it's almost exactly the same. Because I feel my one job that I have at a wedding, other than like making sure they're legally married, my one job as a pastor, my one job as their pastor, is to make sure that the bride and the groom, that the wedding party and the guests all understand the importance of the wedding vow. That though the couple is very much in love, that they're there, there and they look beautiful and they're like, you know, obviously younger and they're like in love and all this stuff, that though that's all true, they're stepping into something that is binding, something that they can't get out of. That's what a covenant is. Now you might be thinking, well, didn't Jesus say you can get out of a marriage if there's like sexual infidelity? The answer is yes, but only because your heart is hard. Meaning you can't find, your, in your, you can't find it in yourself to forgive and to reconcile. The whole, always the point is, rec, the hope is reconciliation, always. My point is this, I want everyone at a wedding to know that the wedding vow is not something you say yes to today but think you can get out of if you're not happy or you don't agree with them or whatever in the future. And this kind of commitment requires a death, which is interesting to me always because weddings happen at an altar, uh, the altar of holy matrimony, the altar of marriage, whatever, it's an altar. And when, I may, I sh- when, they, when they step into the altar, I look at both of them, I'm like, you are about to die. I look at the groom, I'm like, you're about to die. And I look at the bride, I'm like, and you're about to die. And then everyone in, in like the witnesses or the, the, the guests, anyone who's been married over two years is like, oh yeah. <laughs> They're about to die. It takes a death to commit yourself to vows like that. It takes a kind of death. That's, to be bound like that takes a kind of death. And this kind of commitment, because it requires a death and it requires vows, what happens is it creates a new reality. Like there's a a new reality happening as we're doing the wedding, like a new family. See, when people enter into contracts or agreements with a group or a job or even like an apartment, what you're doing when you enter into a contract for a lease or or you buy a house or or you you, you know, get a, start a contract with a job or like a club or whatever, what you're doing is just finding some arrangement that will, cert your, that will suit your current interests. However, a commitment or a covenant changes who you are, or rather it embeds you and embeds who you are into a new relationship, a new reality. 
See, when they're standing there, they're no longer just man and woman, they're husband and wife. They have a new identity now. And I spent about 15 to 20 minutes saying that in different ways before they exchanged vows. Before I let them exchange vows, I make sure, do you understand this is gonna happen? They're like, yes. And then I'm like, you're about to bind yourselves to one another. Now, why do I share all that? Because religion is supposed to do the same thing. Religion is supposed to bind people together. The church is supposed to be a covenantal community bound together by covenantal love. We are in a new covenant relationship with Jesus, and that covenant requires that we be a part of the body of Christ that requires its own kind of death and its own kind of maturity inside of that body. But what if you've been hurt by the church? What if you don't like the church and what it stands for? What if the church has made mistakes that has become something that you think is not healing the world but hurting the world? Here's a picture of Dorothy Day. She was a radical journalist who became a Christian in 1927 and one of modern Christianity's most resolute advocates for the poor and the disenfranchised. And during her life, she was often at odds with the church she committed herself to. She wrote in her book, A Long Loneliness, she said, I love the church for Christ made visible. Not for itself, because it was so often a scandal to me. She said the church was so often a scandal to me. And, I, and just like you can't separate Christ from the cross, you can't separate Christ from his church. One, she says, quote, one must live in a state of perpetual dissatisfaction with the church. She says to be in the church is to live with a perpetual dissatisfaction with the church. And despite her lifelong dissatisfaction with the church, Dorothy Day found, and she wrote prolifically about this, the rituals, the community, the institutions, both sustaining and life-giving. At the end of her life, she said at a gathering in Philadelphia that, quote, my love and gratitude to the church have grown, have grown through the years. She was my mother and nourished me and taught me. She taught me the crowning love of the life of the Spirit. See, it was in the repetitive rituals of the church that the slow work of, the, of binding human beings together takes place. The rituals of eating and drinking and praying and repenting and singing and truth-telling and these repeated actions in Dorothy Day's life engaged together by other human beings that the worship of God actually takes place. Worship of God doesn't necessarily take place in your like, own little individual life because if you read most of the Bible, it's written to a group of people that share a common life together. And these repeated actions engaged together by other human beings, the worship, that's where worship takes place. She has this amazing quote um, in her book, uh, Along Loneliness, about how the rituals of the church is like the exchange of a morning and evening kiss between spouses. She says, it might seem a meaningless ritual, but, on, uh, but which on occasion turns to rapture, a burning fire of tenderness and love. 
What she says there is that, what she means there is that you might have rituals and routines in your marriage, like morning and evening kiss. It's a morning and evening, it's just a ritual. It just, and then there are times where that just meaningless ritual turns to rapture. And the same thing happens in the church. Yes, you show up to church, you stand, you sing, you, peace Christ be with you, you say that to the people around you, you listen, you learn, you come forward, you repent, you receive the elements of, the, of Eucharist, uh, you receive the elements of communion, you go back, you hopefully pray with someone, maybe someone you brought, or maybe you just kneel on the carpets and receive it alone. You do that over and over again, and it feels just like a, a ritual that you're going through. You go to a community group, you do the same thing, you go through the material. You're doing this, and all, so, as you're going through the rituals in your life, you're bound to this community. You don't agree with it all the time. Sometimes you don't, but you still go through it, and then at, there are moments when it turns into rapture, where something clicks that never clicked before in your life, where something opens up a horizon opened up that you never ever thought was possible. And you see, maybe for the first time or the hundredth time, the beauty of Christ and his church. And the point is that the church is not, is not an affinity group. It's not a voluntary association of individuals. This is not a club. This is not, this is not a, a, a group of people that like, are like, do we, do we all like believe the same thing about everything in this whole world and we're gonna come together and start a little club? It's, it's a point, the church is a point of convergence to which people have been impelled by the driving wind of the Spirit to come together. And rather than being an association of, of like-minded people, the church more likely is to be a group of people you would never choose to be friends with if they were not also friends with Jesus. So when you're a community group together, you probably look around and like, I probably wouldn't be friends with you if we were not friends with, all together friends with Jesus. And that's okay, that's actually kind of cool. It's not like, oh yeah, I love my group because they all listen to this exact same music as me. And we all you know, own a house in Tahoe, and this is awesome, you know, whatever. <laughs> it should be people that are completely different from you. When you're in church, and you're peace, the peace of Christ be with you, and you're in, the, this should be a group of people that you actually don't agree with. So when there's things that come up in the world, let's say like Israel and Palestine, and you're like, this, this is the kind of stuff that would divide a church. This is the kind of stuff that divides families. But in the church, even if you don't agree, you, hit the ta- you, you come together at the table of communion, of Eucharist, and say what binds us together is not our political ideologies, but Jesus. And that is so hard, that's so hard to think about, because we think everyone has to agree with us. Everyone has to agree with us on everything. And if you don't, I don't even know, and you, we moralize it, I don't even know if you are a moral person. You're a monster. I think you're a monster. And that's what we do. That's what we do. About anything anyone doesn't agree with us on, we're like, we, we make it moral. And we're like, I don't even, I, I question your entire existence. <laughs> you have to realize that early church was made up of people who didn't agree on anything. And they were, they had to learn how to be one in Christ. And you think our political ideologies that divide our our nation today are hard. This is what the church needs to be. This is not happening anywhere else, by the way. This is always the job of the church. This is always the role of the church. We should be different. We should come in here and go, yeah, I, I don't actually, I don't agree with a lot of things in this church, and yet I'm here and committed to it. That has always been for me a mark of deep maturity when people can commit to a place and even things they don't agree with, yet 
submit to it in its rituals, in its life, and allow themselves to be transformed by it. It's the same thing in a marriage. When you, you mature in a marriage, when you don't, like you realize that the person that you married is just a person and not like the greatest thing in the entire world, and then yet you stay committed over and over and over and over again, and you don't go anywhere. That's the mark of maturity. And so Bowerschmidt says this, and he kind of romanticizes this idea of commitment. He says, so perhaps the answer to the widespread disillusion that many, particularly the young people, feel toward the church is not less religion and more spirituality, but in fact, more religion, more habit, more ritual. That is to say, in a divided and lonely world, those who have been called into friendship with Jesus need to be, even in their differences, more bound to each other, not less. The world needs people who are so closely bound together by the God who is love, they can afford to differ from and with each other and yet still meet at the table of the Eucharist, the feast of their friendship in Christ. The Eucharist of the church, celebrated amid the divisions of the world, is an embodied foretaste of the kingdom, a banquet that makes possible a friendship that dissolves the boundaries of nation and tribe and language, of race and class and gender, rebinding humanity into the one body of Christ, composed of a multitude of members joined together in worship of God. So in this binding, I think the, the, the thing I would, uh, the vision I would wanna give you is that you will not agree with everyone in this church. This year you won't, especially with what's headed, what we're headed to in this, in this crazy year as, as a nation. You will not agree with everyone. You will not agree with certain things that the elders and the leaders, the pastors, the teachers, the evangelists, the prophets, and the apostles of this church maybe even believe. And we have to find a place where this, this thing is, beyond, is more transcendent than you agree on these little tiny points of mine. It's Christ in the center. It's the Eucharist in celebrating that Christ reconciled us to himself and therefore we must be reconciled too. So how can we listen well? How can we forgive well? How can we have these long and difficult conversations holding space for one another? So I'm gonna read this to you again, Ephesians, our text, Ephesians 4, again, in light of everything we just said. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you, church, live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Patient, that word there means long-suffering. Be, suffer long with each other. Bear with each other in love. Make every effort, make every effort. Continue to ask for a space where you can converse. Continue to find a way to reconcile, to ask for forgiveness, or to, or to, or to seek forgiveness, or to offer forgiveness. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. 
So Christ himself gave the leaders of the church, gifted the leaders of the church, the, the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the pastors and the teachers, and they're there in the church to equip you, to equip you, and all that word means, to get you ready, to build you up, to equip you for works of service in the world so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity. The leaders are there to help you mature to become unified in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attain to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves or blown here and there by every wind of teaching and the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. What Paul's doing here is he's saying, there's a thing about infants that they're emotionally unstable. Infants will at one moment be crying and then in another moment be laughing. This happened last night. Nowen and Junie were just like, Nowen was crying and then Juniper started crying and then Nowen started crying and they were just crying at each other and I picked up Nowen and I don't know what I did. I did something and he started laughing and then Junie started laughing and they both started laughing. I'm like, you two are insane. Like, you're insane people. <laughs> like, if you guys did that, if you did I'm like, are you okay? Are, is everything, infants, toddlers, this is kind of how they act. But the hope is that you can become emotionally regulated, that you know how to deal with the things going on inside of you. That's how you grow up. Not only that, but you're not tossed back and forth by the waves. That means you're so, you're not unstable when you're like, when there's a new teaching or a new thing or a new like, did you, but you read this article? No, no, but did you read that article? And like, you're swayed by the news and social media and all this stuff that all of a sudden you're just like tossed back and what do I, what do I believe, what do I believe? But you're mature and you know where, to, you know where north is and you know how to keep going. And then all this stuff might happen, but you know to stay faithful to Christ, remain in church, remain in the ritual of religion, the like practices over and over again. This is what the leadership of the church is like there to do, to help you grow up. That's what Paul is saying. And become in every respect, he says, instead, speaking the truth in love, because truth without love is not truth, and love without truth is not love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. This is the goal, that our church would be mature, from him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, we grow, build itself up in love as each part does its work. Would you stand with me as we pray?